This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show Don't Boo Double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. And good morning, Canberra. Welcome to 2XXFM Fuzzy Logic Science Show. My name is Broderick, and I'll be with you for the next hour, giving you some science for this fantastic Sunday. We've got very sunny outside, which is why we started today with Why Does the Sun Shine from They Might Be Giants. And uh, we've got a whole lot of science lined up for you today. We're going to have a whole heap of fun. And to join me today in the studio, we've got a couple of uh, newbies to the Fuzzy Logic Show. Uh, Making his debut on my left is Roof. Good morning, Roof. Good morning, Brian. How are you going? Good, mate. Good to see you. And uh, on my right, the lovely Pahia. Good morning, Pahia. Hey, Frederick. (laughs) Fantastic to see you guys in here this morning. We're going to have a lot of fun today, I promise. I know it's your first time, but I'll be gentle. Um, But to kick it off, we're going to start off with our fuzzy regular, and uh, that is This Week in Science. So... uh, no, this day in science, in fact, today being the 26th of September. What's happened on this day in science, Pahia? Well, I do have a story for you, Broderick. It's all about genes. All right, so on this day in 1902, the inventor of genes died. No, not the G-E-N-E-S, DNA type of genes, but the denim type of jeans that we all like to wear. In fact, I and Broderick are wearing them right now. Now, these jeans were invented by Levi Strauss. Levi was born in Bavaria, and he trained as a tailor. One of thousands, he travelled to San Francisco in about 1850, hoping to make his fortune. His original plan was to manufacture tents and wagon covers, but he found a better market using the canvas that he was going to make those tents and wagon covers from to make very durable pants for the 49ers. Finding that these pants sold as fast as he could make them, he opened a factory improved the design by adding copper rivets at the stress points and adopted a heavy blue denim material called jeans in France. Jeans? Yeah. That originated the now familiar name of, well, jeans. Jeans. So they were spelt with a G in France, though, and, and yeah. then we changed them to a J to be ang- anglicised. Yeah, I mean... I don't know, pretty impressive invention. They're, they're certainly very well used now. I think they look quite trendy. <laughs> very popular. Very nice. What else has happened this day, Ruth? Ah, in 1991, um, four men and women entered what was called a biosphere, or it was called the Biosphere 2, so I presume that they made one before this. And well, actually, no, I'm going to interrupt you there. Biosphere Ooh. 1 is actually the Earth. Like, that's ah. considered Biosphere 1, and then Biosphere 2 was this, this one they created. It's an Earth in Earth. It's an airtight, self-contained structure, which they built in the United States. Um, the plan was that they would live inside this structure for two years, and um, it was about 200,000 cubic metres. It was sealed glass, um, a space frame structure, apparently, and it contained five biomes, or habitats, uh, and this included a 3.5 million litre ocean that they built, a rainforest, a desert, um, some agriculture area so they could grow their own food and obviously uh, some space for them to live. Uh, it was built all throughout the, the late 80s uh, with apparently $150 million of funding by a Texas oil magnate, Edward Bass. Um, it was designed to be a re- replica of the Earth's environment. Now, when they were in there, uh, they experienced several problems. Um, first of all, the, a limited restricted diet, given that there was not much uh, agriculture space there for them to grow much food. 
um, and also the microorganisms that were living in the soil reduced their oxygen levels in the atmosphere and added nitrous oxide instead. Um, so they came out two years later in September 26th uh, in 1993 and um, the project's results apparently brought a bit of disdain from other scientists because um, they were, well, it was more of an art project apparently rather than a, a science experiment. Uh, so quite interesting. They've actually done something similar recently, um, simulating a trip to Mars. It's called the Mars 500 uh, Project and uh, some Europeans have entered a, um, a capsule that they've built uh, which is supposed to replicate a Mars uh, craft that would go to Mars and I think I can't remember how many days it takes all up but the return trip including I think 30 days on Mars is 500 days so they've entered this spacecraft for 500 days in complete isolation. So, so they're basically locked in this, this made-up room in a building, not going anywhere, just stuck there for 500 days. Yeah, it's in a shed. Um, they've got internet access, as you would have in space, but it's also delayed by 20 minutes. So if they're <laughs> chatting to their friends, it's 20 minutes delayed because that would be the delay they experience in space. That's a very slow conversation then. <laughs> Do you think they're taking Mars bars? Uh, oh, that dear, was terrible. Dear. Um, so what's the point of that, though? Like, just sticking them in there? Why, why don't they just send them off to Mars? Why are they putting them in the it's capsule on Earth? It's to test their, the psychological stresses, I think, of being in, a, in an isolated environment um, and also whether or not they can handle the tasks that they'd have to do to keep themselves occupied in that 500-day trip. So they've got uh, missions, I guess, or pseudo-missions planned <laughs> that they engage in on the trip. Um, they actually get out of the spacecraft when they get to Mars um, and um, do some sort of science experiments on the oh. on the, uh, fake Martian surface. That oh, they've, they, they've created well. a fake Mars yeah, as well. That's, that's impressive. <laughs> well, it sounds very interesting. Um, yeah, it's very yeah. different to what happened in 1991. Yeah. They were testing... They were looking at um, a biosphere, so an ecosystem, yeah. and, and how it interacted, and they found that it was very complex, whereas this experiment... The Mars 500 is more about the psychological impacts of being isolated. Ah, all about the brain. Mm. Yeah. Well, speaking of the brain, I've got a few stories that have come out this week in science, some of my favourite ones. And uh, there's one, one story about a new gene that's been discovered by scientists in the US, which they've nicknamed the Homer Simpson gene. Now, with a nickname like that, I'm going to put it to you guys. What do you think this gene might regulate? Um, hair loss? <laughs> Beer consumption? <laughs> Good, good, good answers. I do like those. No, this this one it actually has to do with the brain. Um, do, you, do you remember that episode of The Simpsons where they found a crayon stuck in Homer's yes. brain up his nose? That is a great episode. Yeah, and when they took it out, suddenly Homer became so much smarter, and and it was this crayon that was causing his stupidity the whole time. Well, the gene that the scientists have found is kind of like this crayon. Um, it, it might possibly be the stupid gene. Um, <laughs> so the, the scientists testing this were performing tests on mice, and they found that when this gene was deleted from the mice or, or no longer working, the mice were more skilled in navigating mazes and better at remembering different objects. Now, they've got kind of a similar um, gene in the human body too. Um, so... It's, it seems like a really odd gene to have in there. It operates in the brain area uh, that regulates how we learn and form new memories, so in the hippocampus of the brain. Um, and it's involved in strengthening the connections when a new memory is being created. Um, but, I mean, to, to me, the biggest question is why would our brain have something in there 
that makes us slightly stupider because it's, it's, it's a gene that's supposedly switched on in the human mind. And if we could somehow switch it off, would we all suddenly become smarter? Yeah, I guess we, uh, we might overthink things, which could be a reason why, you know, a stupid gene has evolved, you know, to avoid thinking too hard about things. And, you know, if you're about to get eaten, you're like, oh, I wonder if he's actually wanting a conversation, you know. Um, and so you wouldn't want to, I don't know, just overthink things before running away, I guess, like yeah. a flight or flight type response. Maybe there's another gene that strengthens your memories as well, and it's just... Um, reinforcing that gene. Okay, so maybe maybe it's you can you can up. yeah, and maybe there's something in our bodies that we can regulate ourselves. Maybe if we're using our brain, that's one operates more. I don't know. You could train it. Perhaps. Train it. Yeah, oh, that would be awesome. Fallen, fallen, fallen to the wayside. Well, yeah. I mean, I suppose possibly it could could start happening because we're supposedly receiving more and more information. Like in in one week, a child today will receive what a child a hundred years ago received in a whole lifetime because of all the information there. So maybe it will start evolving out. Um, well, another discovery found this week uh, in different news came out of uh, North America, um, and they found a new dinosaur. Ooh. Right. Oh, I think I know what this one You is. know this one? Well, okay, you, you might need to be quite Hebrew, but what are, what are some words you need to describe a dinosaur with? Uh, big. Big, yeah. Ancient. Ancient. You know, mean and oh, right, uh, nasty. Right. Yeah. Pointy. Pointy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, big I, teeth. I, big teeth, yeah. Well, I love... Small arms, big teeth. Small arms, yeah. Well, that's kind of the carnivores, isn't Broderick. it? He's trying to do small <laughs> arms. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad there's not television on this radio station. Um, well, this dinosaur, described by scientists as being pretty. A pretty dinosaur. It's it's called the Cosmoceratops Richardsoni, and it's supposedly pretty because it's got this amazing array of fifteen horns. So these fifteen horns were spread over its head, with one over the nose, one above each eye, one at the tip of each cheekbone, and ten across the back of its bony frill. So it kind of had one of those those frills like a, a Triceratops does, but it had horns all over it. So you can imagine this amazingly horned, ornate. Dinosaur. Like a tiara. Yeah. Or a collar. It's pretty, I guess. Yeah, the pretty. And I'm sure, you know, with all the leaves and stuff, it would have got leaves speared on its horns and it would look... Well, it was a herbivore, so it was definitely in the trees. Um, There was also another dinosaur discovered by the same group this week. This one's called the Utah Ceratops Getty. And um, this one wasn't described as pretty, but it does have a big head Um, (laughs) and a large horn over its nose. And this one has horns near its eyes that poke out sideways for something a bit different. So, yeah, straight out from the cheeks. I suppose it's to, to, to hit people who are trying to eat beside you. I'm not sure. Protect its eyes. Yeah. yeah. But these were both herbivores. Um, that It's, it's uh, predicted they roamed around the lost continent of Laramidia, which is uh, now part of Central North America. Um, but it's, it's really interesting because this has been found in what's been called a fossil gold mine in Utah. Um, scientists have been working on this site since the year 2000 and they've found so much stuff there and they're expecting to find more plants invertebrate dinosaur fossils than they found anywhere else in the world so they're really getting excited um working on this site and uh, having a lot of fun too how do all those bones end up in the same place? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Well, it, I don't know whether, whether something was there, like whether there was a big pit and dinosaurs kept Still falling in, in yeah. um, or, or, or something. the soil has um, kept them all together in the one place, like they haven't been moved, like there hasn't been any water through that area yeah. to separate the bones or yeah. something like that. Definitely. Or, or alternatively, it could be a lot of water that's like washed all the bones into 
you know, cable. Yeah. Spot. Yeah. It was something, something like the leaves in your backyard roof. Cause the leaves, sorry, I, I should mention, I went to Roof's place on Saturday and was quite shocked to find out the back there was this big pile of leaves. And I thought Roof had been cleaning up, but no, it was just the way the wind worked and blew all the leaves into a pile. That's handy. We actually had an inspection, uh, a while ago and I, the day before the inspection, I brushed out all the leaves. I got rid of them all. I put them under the big trees that they'd fallen, um, out from under. And uh, the the guys who came to inspect the house um, made a comment, oh, too many leaves. And I got home, uh, and literally overnight, they'd all blown back into these perfect like, triangles. So these wind tunnels had obviously blown the leaves right back where, where they were apparently meant to be. Um, and they were just these perfect shapes. And I, yeah. you know, I threw my hands up. I'm like, well, what was the point? <laughs> yeah, well, well, you can talk about dinosaur bones next time this happens. And we, we've come up with our theory that maybe it's not wind blowing the bones together, but some water washing them away. Speaking of dinosaurs, can yep. I mention a story that I read? Um, Go for it. Recently, they recently um, sequenced the apple genome um, at, uh, I think it was in America. And um, they found, uh, through a bunch of analyses, that the apple evolved about the same time that the dinosaurs became extinct. So they think that the same event that um, extinguished apples. the dinosaurs actually brought about conditions which meant that, ap- that apples could evolve. So, yeah. Well, wow. maybe it was just the apple poisoning the dinosaurs. Yeah. Potentially. <laughs> that old apple trick. Yeah, How did they figure day. out the date of um, the genome? Well, um, uh, fruits have a certain number of chromosomes and apples apparently have almost twice as many chromosomes. So uh, uh, cherry might have six or seven chromosomes and apple has apparently 17. And they found that fruits that had these extra chromosomes evolved around the same time. So that's how they, they drew a correlation there. Wow. Pretty awesome stuff. All right, one final story from this week. And uh, this one is uh, a bit of an interesting discovery out of New Zealand. Scientists are trying to find some deodorant for the native birds. They're too smelly. New Zealand birds are so smelly. They're being detected by predators too easily, and uh, this is having a devastating impact on the bird numbers over there. Now, the, the reason for this is, is another evolution thing. It's because New Zealand birds kind of evolved in isolation. They didn't, have, uh, they didn't evolve alongside mammals like a lot of um, other birds did on different continents. They were on their own, and so they didn't really have any predators. Um, and this smell they produce is uh, done when they're preening themselves, and it uh, produces a wax that protects their feathers. Now, now that there's introduced predators on the islands, though, the birds are being smelt by these introduced predators and becoming easy prey. Uh, according to the scientists, the kiwi bird... Well, what, what do you think a kiwi would smell like? Uh, probably like a hot mud bath. <laughs> like the springs in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. Hang yeah. out there a bit. Actually, well, that's, that's not too far off because the report here says mushrooms or ammonia. So maybe some ammonia from those. And uh, another native bird, the kakapo parrot. <laughs> now, this is highly specific. It supposedly smells like musty violin cases. Mm. Yeah, something that I've smelt regularly too. Um, I, that's, that's according to the scientists there, but basically these strong smells on the birds are a problem. So a $600,000 grant has been given to researchers at the Canterbury University to continue sniffing birds and uh, possibly even to vent some sort of kiwi deodorant. So that there you stinks, go. bro. Oh, dear. That's Look, terrible. with that terrible joke, we're going to have to go to the song. Um, so let's, let's leave the science for this week and this day there. 
and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM 98.3 in the Canberra region. And uh, let's get into our theme for today. Hunters and welcome along to Sports Science with Fuzzy Logic. We've got the grand finals in full swing, the Commonwealth Games about to kick off in Delhi. So we thought, what better time to talk about a bit of the science behind sport? In modern times, athletes want to train harder, play longer, and hit stronger. Meanwhile, social sports people like you and I just want things to be easier when we play ball, run, or exercise. And this is where science comes in. For both professionals and amateurs, science plays a huge role in sport. And today, we're going to look at some of the amazing sports science out there. You know, sports drinks helping us out, whether it's just all in our head for us to succeed, and uh, some pretty amazing sports equipment too. But here, do you want to kick us off with a bit of a story about Oscar? Sure. So... I found an article today, and it's based on using artificial help in competitive sport. And I wanted to raise this because I think it's an interesting issue at the moment. Uh, It's a story about Oscar Pistorius. He's a South African, and they call him the fastest man with no legs. So a little bit about Oscar. He was born without his fibula bones in both legs. So when he was about 11 months old, his parents chose to amputate both his legs just below the knee. Okay, so the fibula are the ones down the bottom there. Yes. Is, is there the tibia too down there, or is, am I thinking of the arms where there's two bones? No, there's two in, in your legs, aren't there? Two. So he didn't have his fibula, but he must have had his tibia. Yeah. And, but they did decide to amputate because it wasn't strong enough to hold, hold him up. Okay, yep. So from about one year old, he was only walking on prosthetic legs. So he only knew um, walking on prosthetic legs. But nonetheless, he said to his dad, you know what, dad, I'm going to play Super 8 rugby. And he was active all through school. He played rugby. He was on the water polo team and the tennis team. Now, I play tennis and I can't imagine doing it on two prosthetic legs. So already, I think he's a pretty great guy. He was injured playing rugby, so his doctor suggested he try running. He was fast right from the start. So at about 17, he ran his first competitive race. He'd had two months training And he ran it in 11.51 seconds. Now, the world record was 12.2. So he was pretty, pretty fast. 0.3 of a second shy of the world record on two prosthetic legs. Now, he was one of the only double amputee runners. So he was uh, running in Paralympic competitive racing. And he tried using the prosthetics that single amputees were running on. But he was convinced that he could fashion something better for his own needs. So he approached a team of designers and a manufacturer and ended up making carbon fibre legs. They're called flex foot cheaters. They've been uh, trialled and redesigned a few times, but the end product is modelled on the ankle physiology of the cheetah, which, as we know, is the fastest human... uh, Sorry, fastest animal (laughs) on land. So he has these pretty cool carbon fibre legs and he went to the Beijing Olympics with them 
and became the first Paralympian to win gold in all three events, the 100, 200 and 400 metre sprints. How much uh, do these carbon fibre legs weigh? I mean, carbon fibre is quite a light material, isn't it? Now, I don't know the exact weight, but I can imagine they'd be pretty light. And that's what I was getting to because he was doing pretty well. They actually did an inquiry into it and found that he was actually using a lot less energy than his able-bodied runners because um, he didn't have to move as much of his own weight because these legs were pretty light. So the flex switch eaters, they helped him to win silver over able-bodied runners. So he went, sorry, to the South African National Championships and he raced against, in the 400 metres, the able-bodied runners and came silver. So he ruffled a few feathers um, and there was an inquiry. He uses 25% less energy running on these cheetah feet. Wow. Can, can you tell us what they look like? Because in my head, I've got these... They, 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 I've just had this action done in front of me, but to, the, the, the legs that I've seen before kind of look like kangaroo feet. They're, they're, they kind of bend back and they're long and, and flat. Is that what these yes. cheetah legs Yes, like? they are. They have the reverse to what we have. So do they bounce then as you run as well? Because I'd imagine if it was curved, it would flex and you'd get a whole lot of extra energy from the, I mean, the recoil of it. Yes, they do flex, but they also, um, the way he runs is more a circular motion than how we run, so he actually bounds along. So yes, you do get a little bit of that compression and then you actually stride forward as well. Yeah. Probably is quite close to a kangaroo. Maybe he hasn't seen a kangaroo. <laughs> I've seen um, uh, stilt walkers. And so you, get, you have normal stilts, which is just the really long poles, and then you have um, acrobatic stilts, which are these kind of curved... Um, metal stilts and they bend as well and you can actually you can do it's almost like you're on a trampoline you can do somersaults you can run really fast and take these giant 10 meter strides so i'd imagine uh, oscar's stride would be quite long as well, as well. Yeah. Yeah. so he propels himself forward really hmm. um that's what the test revealed that the blades use a lot less vertical motion and then, therefore, because it's a different kind of motion, you're using less mechanical work for lifting your own body. So to run the same speed, you're using less energy than everybody else. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Should he be allowed to use them? He is a Paralympian, but he is now competing. He's so good. He's broken his own world record 27 times. <laughs> that They're putting him in with able-bodied runners, and he's winning. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? Because clearly, well, you think he's at a disadvantage, but I don't know. Could we put like normal runners in these feet, and and could like could I fix them to my feet? These extra little feet on the bottom, and see if I can run faster in them or something like that. Yeah, hold up taller, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, I'd be. Oh, I suppose I'd have huge strides, and yeah. wouldn't I be a giant? But so I mean, I'd like to give it a go. Is that taking away from what the Olympics are really about—the training and the endurance of the human body and? sport and testing yourself and pushing yourself and challenging yourself oh. by using these mechanical equipment, really. Well, he was... It's a, you said that he, um, he started using prosthetic legs when he was one years old, right? Or yes. one year old. Um, so I'd imagine he'd be quite good at it. So I don't see why if you've trained for long enough with them that you wouldn't be able to compete. I mean, they'd just be like regular legs like any of us. I mean, we trained for 20, you know, 25 years in, in our legs, I guess. So yeah. if he's had the same amount of time, why wouldn't he be able to compete with... Um, but but then again, operate differently to ours. So it's almost like, you know, you, it's a human against a cheetah in some ways. Well, not not like cheetah as in the ER, ironic. but cheetah as in the animal. Um, it is ironic. That's yeah, ironic. <laughs> I think so. Well, it's also like using... It's using Mother Nature, really, to, to excel, using what Mother Nature's done well. Yeah. Um, but also the Speedos. That, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Phelps but... used in the Beijing Olympics the full body wetsuits that were modeled on the dolphin and shark skins. Yeah. So they're so aerodynamic that. And um, we're all shaving these seconds off our own records. Well, they've gotten rid of them now. The, the, the FINA has finally declared that these suits are illegal. Um, and so, you know, all these records that were broken in these fantastic suits still stand because they're brilliant suits because they're modelled on Mother Nature again. But, um, you know, it's going to be a while now before um, athletes can push themselves. Although maybe maybe now that these, these higher records have been set, you know, maybe people have got it in their head that maybe, oh, I can break these times. Someone's gone that fast. It doesn't matter that I don't have that suit. I can do it myself. Yeah, well, I think the point of, of the suits was that they were available to everyone. Everyone could have worn them, uh, whereas this is, I think, re- very restrictive. I mean, you can't, we can't all put a prosthetic leg on, uh, presumably, but you could, I guess, augment your body. Um, so you can either open it up to everyone being able to augment their body or... Um, just leaving it to people who need it. Which, uh, where do you draw the line, though? I think it's a, it's a tricky one. Yeah, very difficult indeed. But I think a lot of it does have to do with the the way you think about things and the way you approach stuff. And um, you know, the the brain definitely has a huge effect on the way we play sport. Yeah. Well, there's a, a, a hypothesis called the central governor hypothesis, which um, is the idea that the the limitations to your performance is not in your muscles or your lungs or your heart but um, actually in, in the mind. So it's all about um, it, you know, your mind restricting how much or how fast you can run or, or how high you can jump. And they recently did a study um, which was looking at, uh, oddly enough, sports drinks and how simply putting the sports drink in your mouth as opposed to actually drinking it um, can uh, boost your uh, body's performance as well. Um, so this study was done uh, over at the University of Birmingham and they gave their participants um, three different drinks. One was um, a glucose solution, so a sugar, a sugar drink. Another was it uh, contained a tasteless carbohydrate. And the third was just a, um, a you know, regular water. They sweetened all of these drinks equally with artificial sweetener. Um, so they all tasted the same. And uh, they were given one before each training session. And they were asked to spit it out, so they didn't actually drink it, but they just put it in their mouth. And they found that um, the athletes that, drank, that put the carbohydrate solution in their mouth um, actually improved their performance by about roughly 3%. And so given this result, they decided to actually scan the athlete's brain while they were putting these solutions in their mouth after exercise. And they found that the reward systems of the brain um, were actually activated as soon as the carbohydrates hit their, their taste buds. So a signal was being sent, sent to their brain to say, oh, I'm getting carbohydrates, you know, time to, you know, our muscles can work better now, even though the carbohydrates never actually made it to any of the muscles. It's pretty amazing stuff, the way our brain can trick you. There's a, there's a similar study that was done um, with caffeine down at Coventry University where they got some cyclists together and um, gave them different drinks. They were split into teams. You know, one was given caffeine and other teams were given placebo. But the, the interesting thing there was one team was told they would be given caffeine and they were actually given caffeine. Another team was told they would be given caffeine but were given a placebo another team was told they would be given a placebo but were given caffeine and then the last team was told they were given a placebo and they actually got given a placebo so there's all these different options how many people got caffeine 
two, so two teams okay. got caffeine and two teams got placebos, but one of each of those was told they got caffeine and one was told they got a placebo to confuse it. And the really interesting result here was, well, clearly the team that got given caffeine and were told they were given caffeine won. Um, they, did, they did a lot better than everyone else because they had it in their head and they actually had the chemicals. But... The team that got given the placebo but were told they were given caffeine and the team that were told they were given the placebo but actually got given caffeine. Have I got that the right way around there? Yeah, it sounds about Yeah. They both scored equally. So the people that had it in their head that they had caffeine but didn't actually have it did as well as the people that had caffeine but didn't think they did. So, therefore, you can kind of see the chemical effect and the mind effect once again coming into play. Yeah, doesn't that happen often um, in a lot of medical studies when they're testing drugs versus placebo? Quite often, they find that placebos can have a similar, not maybe not the same degree of effect, but you know, an effect in a, in a way because you've got it in your mind that you're getting something um, that's positive for your body and going to boost your performance or, or at least boost your immune system and that seems to trigger parts of your brain um, that respond to that. I thought that we, um, you actually drank sports drinks after you'd finished exercising to replenish yourself. I'm surprised that they would then test you uh, exercising after you drank the sports drinks. And I also thought that it was the salt in sports drinks that rehydrated you. Yeah, well, there's lots of stuff in, in sports drinks that hydrate you. And you're actually, you are supposed to drink them uh, before, during and after exercise um, as you would water. I mean, and I suppose that brings us to the question of really how good are these sports drinks for you? Because, I mean, hydration is a huge part of any sport. And when you're, you're sweating, you're working hard, you're pushing out uh, water, so you're getting dehydrated. But also when you sweat, you're pushing out electrolytes. And you're also using a huge whole heap of energy, so burning off carbohydrates in your body and that sort of thing. And sports drinks like Powerade, Gatorade, they're advertised as being pretty good, good for you in sports, you know, train harder. I've got a bottle here in front of me I'm trying to read. Um, so a no-name drink, I'm not going to say the brand, is uh, scientifically proven to help you perform at your peak longer. Special blend of carbohydrates and electrolytes is in balance with your body's fluid to provide fast and effective hydration. I mean, spiritual. It sounds, it sounds good. Definitely sounds good. It looks nice and orange. It does. It does. It looks good too. But I mean, how good is it? Well, the, the history of these drinks dates back to a the 1960s, back in the US, where um, uh, a football coach of the University of Florida team um, was getting worried about his players getting so dehydrated in the warm uh, Florida sun, and uh, they were suffering a lot. So he took it to the university doctors, and uh, the doctors did some research, discovered the players were losing, not only losing fluids in the heat, but they were also losing their electrolytes through sweat, and uh, carbohydrates were being burnt. So they discovered all these things for the first time, really, and uh, decided to formulate a, uh, a drink, you know, a balanced carbohydrate. And when we say carbohydrate, I should explain, we're really talking about sugars mm. in this case. I mean, you can get carbohydrates from bread and pasta, and certainly they'll help complex carbohydrates like that, and they'll help you over a longer period. But in the short term, it's the sugar hit that we really want. So, yeah, so they developed this balanced carbohydrate electrolyte mix in a new drink, and... Uh, became known as Gatorade, named after the Florida Uni football team, the Gators. Um, and and the, the fairy tale part of this story, which I'm sure you've seen on the Gatorade ads, is that once the Gators started drinking Gatorade, they went on to win the Orange Bowl for the first, which is the big grand final in their um, uni division, for the first time in the history of the university. So, I mean, this amazing drink put them out there. And 
then other teams started adopting it too, and now, I mean, it's just commonplace in sports that they're not drinking water, they're drinking these these sports drinks. Um, and there's there's a whole lot of different types out there too, which I didn't realise of these sports drinks. There's There's three main ones, isotonic, hypertonic, and hypertonic. So, yeah, isotonic are the, are the more common ones we see in the shops because they've got high electrolytes, so high levels of salts and that sort of thing, and high carbohydrates, so high sugars. And the idea of these ones is it's supposed to replace fluid quickly um, that's lost by sweating and provide a boost of, of carbohydrates for your energy. And it's used by most athletes, especially middle and long-distance running or team sports. And... Um, and so, yeah, that's probably the most common one out there. Um, the hypertonic drinks are slightly different. They've got high electrolytes, so lots of salts, but not much sugar. And that's supposed to replace fluids lost by just sweating. Um, but you don't need that boost of sugars. Um, so that's used by people like jockeys and gymnasts. Um, and also, I think, uh, racing car drivers too. Um, Gatorade especially worked with racing car drivers to develop something to help them because they sweat a whole lot in the car there. Um, and then finally, hypertonic drinks, which just have high levels of sugars, basically. Um, so, so is that why it's called hypertonic? Hypertonic, <laughs> yeah, just, get just to get those sugars blasting in. Um, so, I mean, if you choose your sports drinks appropriately, you can certainly help yourself out. Um, but, you know, and, and the, well, the other good thing about these drinks is because they're flavoured, you drink more than you would water because you get sick of water pretty quickly. Yes. And people actually stop drinking water before they're fully hydrated. But, I mean, the big question is... What if you haven't been exercising or haven't been exercising hard? Are they really that good for you? Well, I brought in a couple of bottles here today, and I'm going to get you guys to help me compare. I've got a bottle of uh, 600ml cola, so I'll give that one to you, Ruth. Oh, dear, this is a very bad idea. No, no, I don't want you to drink it. (laughs) And um, here I've got a bottle of 600ml uh, sports drink here. And I just want to compare the the ingredients list. So the the purse serving in 600ml... Ruth, how many sugars does the cola drink have? Uh, apparently it has 64... Sorry, just into the microphone, mate. 64 grams of sugar okay. uh, per, per serving, which is 600 mils. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and how about the Powerade? I've got 46 grams 40... of sugar. So, in the bottles, they've got... I mean, that's got like 30% more sugar in the Coke, but it's still a whole heap of sugar yeah. in both of those. All right, um, let's take a look at the... Uh, the the I mean both have zero grams of fat because they're drinks. Um, but the, the sodium levels, sodium leveling in your cola there, Roof. Uh, the sodium levels is the sixty uh, milligrams per six hundred mils. Okay, and for you, per here? I've got one hundred and sixty-seven milligrams. Wow. Okay, so it's got a lot more salt in there mm. um, because it's yeah, trying definitely. to replace electrolytes. But I mean, you can imagine if you're doing a um, if you really haven't worked that hard, that amount of salt is like eating, you know, hot chips. There's heaps of salt in there. Yeah, so right. it's really not going to be doing what you're much good. If we compare the ingredients list too, um, so what, what's the, the first ingredient in yours, Ruth? Um, it's carbonated purified water. Oh, okay, carbonated yeah. water. I'm assuming the sports <laughs> drink will be water too. After that's cane sugar. Cane sugar. I've and lost my ingredients. You've lost your ingredients? Where's my ingredients list? Uh, it's temporarily misplaced. Uh, I'll find it. But um, I did notice that the Coke the had twice as much um, kilojoules as the Powerade. So oh, okay. Quite as much energy. So so you get a lot more energy from the Coke, yeah. Which, but a lot uh, more salt from the yeah. Coke. So this says it contains water, sucrose is the second one. Sucrose. So once again, and we've got sugars acid. then, and then food acid, and Coke has food acids. And malt- maltodextrin, which is actually the same uh, tasteless carbohydrate they used in that study we were talking about 
earlier. Okay. So, so, so they're putting in more sugar there, but probably mm. that's, that's the energy type sugar. Um, and then we've got flavours and all those sorts of things. And I think the Powerade has some interesting little salts near the end of the ingredients list too. Some random little... Some sodium salt. chloride, some tripotassium phosphate. Yeah. And some colours. Okay. <laughs> Orange colour. Orange colour by the looks of this. So, I mean, there, there are differences between these drinks. You've got different levels of electrolytes and that sort of thing. But really, they're pretty similar things. You know, the Coke and the Powerade. Um, oh, I've just said... Oh. <laughs> trying very hard not to say the brands well, here. And I'm this just, one is lovingly crafted, apparently. Oh, lovingly. So, yeah. Oh, well, that's and a big difference totally there. irresistible. This one has an average osmolity of 295 milliosmoles. There you go. Almost per litre. Oh, there we are. If, if you know what that is, um, please ring and tell someone who you can talk to. You can't talk to us, unfortunately, because we're in the studio. But that's very interesting stuff there from those sports drinks. So really, look, if uh, they're great, if you've actually worked hard and sweating out heaps and, you know, you need to replace those fluids. Otherwise, really, those sports drinks are just marketed sugar water in uh, fancy packaging. And too much salt. So you're too, much some, more salt than you need, I guess. Yeah. Put some salt in your Coke and you'll be fine. <laughs> That's right. Look, if you prefer Coke, just salt it up and I'm sure you'll be good. Wasn't that that great movie, uh, was it Idiocracy, that, where they um, used Gatorade for everything? They started watering plants because... No, it was a nameless other sports drink or whatever. <laughs> they, it was all about electrolytes and they um, they started watering like their plants with electrolytes. And Did, did it improve the plants? No, I mean, it, it killed everything. It killed everything. It <laughs> basically destroyed... The, electrolytes destroyed the world in that movie. It was nice. Right. <laughs> well, there you go. Don't water your plants with uh, the sports <laughs> drinks either. <laughs> The time's now 12.14. You're listening to 2XX 98.3 FM. Fuzzy Logic today here with Broderick, Roof and Pahia. And I think it's time to look at something a bit different. Let's go extreme Pahia and uh, talk about uh, an amazing guy. And I've lost his name, so you're going to have to fill me in. Well, actually, I'd like to start with you, Broderick. With me? Okay, yes. An amazing guy. (laughs) You you went skydiving recently. I did. I did. I jumped out of plane. Were you scared? Surprisingly not, actually. I, I got up there and I got it filmed and I, I, I remember looking out the window and I just had this huge smile on my face because I'm just like, I'm going to fall in a second. And oh, it was it was a huge rush, don't get me wrong. Like I got back on the ground and I was still shaking from the adrenaline. But no, I wasn't scared. It was just amazing. Did you forget that you were on a plane, like travelling up to whatever, 20,000 feet? 14,000. Oh, 14,000? Um, no, no, it just seemed... Um, like, like that was it was all supposed to happen, despite the fact there's a roller door down one end of the plane, which you normally don't see, um, like a garage door type thing. It just seemed quite normal. There was uh, no biological urge telling you to stay in the plane and not jump. No, no, and I'm wondering whether something's wrong with me, actually, because the, the people in front of me, they had this urge, and I had my mate Ben behind me, and he said he was a little bit nervous um, when he jumped out, but no, I just, I, I was ready to, to fall. When it happened. <laughs> it's called fear. Should yeah, I should look that up in the dictionary. <laughs> but it's not fear that we wanted to talk about. It is skydiving. Um, I'm a bit uh, interested in skydiving. And the highest ever sky jump. And it was done by Joseph Kittinger. Kittinger. Now, the normal parachute jumps, the one that Broderick did, was 4,200 metres. So that's about average. And you reach terminal velocity within 10 seconds when you jump out of the plane. Wow. So when your weight equals your drag, and you're travelling approximately 55 metres per second at this point. Now, Joseph Kittinger, he 
wanted to be the highest person to skydive. So he went up in a, a balloon, sorry, because it actually can go higher than a plane. You can't jump out of a plane um, going at 26,000 feet, which is the highest that planes can travel um, because it's going too fast. So you've got to go up in a balloon if you want to go higher than planes fly. Does so anyone they... know why planes can't go any higher? Do you guys know? I don't know. No, no, I'm curious. Why they stop at 26,000 feet? Well, I thought they, they went, maybe it's the small planes you jump out of, because I, I thought the cruising altitude was about... Oh, sorry, metres, not feet. Meters. Oh, 26,000 metres. Ah, there we are. My mistake. Units error. That, that makes a lot more sense now, yeah. It's all in metres. This story's all in metres. Okay. 26,000 metres is where planes fly at. Yeah. But the, um, the jump that Joseph Kittinger did was at 31,000 feet. Meters, meters. So it's 31 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. Wow. Yes. Crazy. So he went up in a balloon and he fell for four minutes and he was in free fall for four minutes and 36 seconds before his um, bigger parachute opened. Okay, so just to jump in there. So when I, I jumped from 14,000 feet, which is about 4K, I free fell for... Uh, 60 seconds. So there's a, that's, and he was going for four minutes. Four, four minutes. That's huge. He reached a maximum speed of 1,050 meters. No kilometers per hour. 1,050 kilometers per hour. So Broderick was probably about 55 meters per second. He was going 1,000 kilometers per hour. That's how Pretty fast quick. he was falling. Yeah. But what was interesting, all the stats aside, is that um, his terminal velocity at higher altitudes, he's actually travelling um, faster than when he gets to the lower altitudes and the air is thicker. So he actually sort of collides with the lower um, atmosphere. So his terminal velocity doesn't slow him down enough and when he gets to the lower atmosphere, he's travelling too fast and he actually collides with the lower atmosphere and... When he did his jump, this was about 23,000 metres where he felt this impact. It was an impact of 1.2 Gs, and he said he felt like a choking feeling. Wow. Now, he's a pretty intense man because he not only jumped once, he actually jumped twice. <laughs> so his first time, what happened was um, he wore a full pressure suit to protect from the low pressure of the stratosphere, but it was the problem keeping stable. So when he hit this low atmosphere, he actually um, ended up going into a rotation. So he ended up at 120 revolutions per minute. So he was spinning out of control um, and he lost consciousness. Luckily, his main parachute automatically opened and he was okay. But So this was his first jump. He went up again and jumped again. So he went and he was in free fall for four minutes. He did it all again and was the only person who, have, who has jumped from that high. Now, someone else has attempted it. A bit, rec bit more recently, in 2008, uh, a guy called Michael Fournier attempted it, but his balloon malfunctioned and departed without him. <laughs> That's unfortunate. <laughs> Which I thought was quite a funny story. But he was going to go from 40,000 metres. So as it stands, Joseph Kittinger, at 31,000 metres, has been the highest skydiver. But this guy had the thought, like, he had oh, the thought. I might do it as well. Oh, yeah. it didn't work. But... I must say that Joseph Kittinger was in 1960. So wow. it was a long time ago, and no one has beat, um, beaten him yet. I reckon Canberra Balloon Festival next year, yeah. we're going to talk to one of those operators, get him to fly us up, and we'll jump out again. Um, might need a couple more practices before we try that, though. Yeah. So he was travelling at a thousand, over a 1,000 kilometres an hour and also rotating at 100 revolutions a minute. Yeah. That was his first jump, yes. Yeah. It was... Wow. 
He's a pretty intense man. It's it's an interesting feeling though because I I must admit I when we jumped out of the plane we were travelling at 110 is about the average for your free fall and you reach that terminal velocity pretty quickly and once mm. you reach it you really don't feel like you're falling. I mean, it's like you're sitting in a car at 110 kilometres an hour mm. because you just, that's the constant motion and so your body gets used to it. So mm. I'd be interested to see, I mean, you'd obviously feel yourself speeding up, but once you reach it at 1,000 kilometres an hour, whether you'd just be quite, oh, okay, I'm just well, kind of did. falling. When he reached it, it was at 23,000 metres, yeah. which is approximately how high planes fly. Okay. So he's still mighty high off the ground. Yeah. And he did reach his terminal velocity, but um, the second time. When he wasn't spinning out of control. Okay. So this air barrier that he hit when he uh, moved into the, the thicker atmosphere, mm. did that change his speed as well? I'd imagine it would have slowed yes. down. So then does he slow down when he hits this barrier and then speed up again back to terminal velocity? Or does terminal velocity change depending on terminal how high you are? Terminal velocity changes. Okay. Yeah. So he has a higher terminal velocity when the thinner air, but then as he was going into the thicker air, his, his drag was actually increasing. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah, his terminal velocity changed, and then the difference was so much that it in fact impacted on him, and he felt it. Yeah, that's right. Because it's like Newton's um, third law of motion. I think every action has an equal and opposite mm. reaction. So the the gravity is pulling you down, but you've got all those air particles pushing against you. And when there's more air particles as you get closer to Earth, they're going to push against you more and slow you down there. Um, but yeah, very interesting stuff. Crazy man, crazy. That feeling of um, of not accelerating when you're travelling that fast is quite interesting. Um, when I was studying psychology, we um, we were looking at those sort of effects, and it's um, it's a sort of your brain just gets used to everything flying past you. And so, you know, if you if you're driving along a road at say 100 kilometres an hour and you do it for long enough, your peripheral vision gets all of these things flying past it at the same sort of speed, and eventually your brain just gets used to it. And so that's why when you slow down, so you, you go from a 100 kilometer hour area to a 60 kilometer zone, you feel like you're going really slowly because your brain's so used to it going past you so quickly that all of a sudden it feels even slower. To be a psychologist, that's called visual perception. Yes, no. vision perception. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if you're actually um, taking in more then when you get into the 60 kilometer an hour zone um, because you feel like everything's going past you slower, whether you, you take more in through your eyes and you know you're better at reading things or whether it just feels like it's going yeah, slowly yeah that's oh very interesting well we're going to take a little break here on fuzzy logic and uh have another song something sports appropriate i thought a fantastic cover here from n phases uh of the brilliant footy song more than a game certainly is more than a game did you see those footy players collapse after the end of the grand yeah. final yesterday, poor guys, they're gonna heartbreaking. Have to, uh, they're gonna have to do it all again on uh, Sunday. But that was the, a cover of "More Than a Game" there from M Phases. You're listening to ninety-eight point three FM Two Double X, and this is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Sunday. Broderick, Roof, and Pahia in the studio and we're going to finish off with one last bit of sports science today, which is what we've been talking about, and uh, well. It's not so much science as pseudoscience, uh, which is something I really hate. People pretending to be scientists when they're not. Uh, last time I was on Fuzzy, I spoke about the terribly misleading pseudoscience in the cosmetics industry. Those fantastic ads, pro-retinol A and... Stops the seven signs of aging. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, it it makes me cringe. The seven signs of aging, yeah. I can see at least four of them on you, oh. Ruth. 
Um, <laughs> the marketing the marketing industry loves to play on people's insecurities, you know, making you feel like you need more products than will really do you good. And the sports industry is definitely similar. You know, those uh, fantastic little uh, products they advertise on late night TV, you know, just 15 minutes on the ab roller a day will make you have abs that look like a cheese grater. Um, I did just watch your abs just like poke out there. And yeah, was... oh, look, my abs look, they not just so like much a, a cheese grater. Just, really. oh, thank you, thank exactly you. Like <laughs> well, there's, there's another, another one out there at the moment which I thought we'd have a chat about today, and that's power balance wristbands. Um, what is power balance? Well, according to their website, and I'm going to read this in the uh, appropriate voice, I think. Power balance is performance technology that uses holograms embedded with frequencies that react positively with your body's natural energy field to improve balance, strength, and flexibility. Almost everything has a frequency inherent to it. Some frequencies react positively with your body and others negatively. When the hologram comes in contact with your body's energy field, it allows your body to interact with the natural beneficial frequency stored within the hologram. This results in improved energy flow throughout your body. Did you guys hear science in there? I, I have no idea what you just said. I heard frequency. Frequency, yeah. I, I heard it frequently. <laughs> they like to use, use words and um, to try and trick you to think there's science. According to the CEO of the company, uh, Troy Rodamel, uh, he developed these holograms drawing on his computer electronics background, of course, to embed frequencies or energies from natural rocks and crystals used to promote wellness in Eastern medicine into Mylar film. Wristbands place the hologram near one of the body's chi points, stimulating improved health. And for all this amazingness, you only need to fork out $60. Now, I will clarify here and step in. We're not rubbishing any Eastern medicine or chi points because I think Chinese medicine can do some fantastic things. Mm. We're simply talking about the pseudoscience here in the power balance wristbands. So they extract energy from from the, the stones and then you put it on your body and that... Not the stones, the frequency. Because oh, su- su- supposedly our body has a natural frequency. I, th- mm. I think it's something in the 7 megahertz range. Okay. I, th- don't quote me on that one. I don't have that in front of me. But it's, it's supposed to have a natural frequency. And when you're in tune with it, it, it promotes more wellness in your body. Um, supposedly, once again, if you do drink lots of alcohol, do drugs, that sort of thing. It's bad for your body. It gets it out of frequency. It puts negative frequencies in there that cancel it out. Allegedly. Allegedly, yes, very allegedly here. Um, but, look, they're, they're crazy stuff, these things. You know, but so pe- I've seen them. Yeah, yeah. I've seen people wearing them. They're just like a, they're like a little watch, a tiny little watch, and on the top where the watch face normally is is a silver disc, and it lies flat against your skin because there's not much to it. It's just literally a little piece of paper that has a hologram on it. And I actually saw them. They're being sold in sports shops. Not sports shops, are billabong kind of, what do you call those, surf shops. Surf- and wow. um, I asked the girl what it was all about, and she said, I'm not really sure, but I think they work. <laughs> well, I think that's the thing in your head because they, they are trying to ma- ma- manufacture, market them to surfers quite a bit because it's a lot to do with your balance. So they've got a fantastic test which I've watched online and um, what they do is they get you to stand up, put your arms out to your side um, 
sorry, out to the side. Um, so they're poking out and then stand on one leg and then the guy will push down on your arm and you'll fall over, obviously. Can I try it? Yeah, do you want to try it? Look, yeah. come over here, Ruth. Come over here. Stand, stand next to me. We're going to try this out here. So stand up. So arms out Open to the side. That's out. right. Stand on one leg. Stand on one leg? Stand on one leg. Okay. He's falling over and, already. Um, yeah, hold on. No, you can't lean on the wall. And then <laughs> I push hard. down on your head. Look, you, you can feel yourself bouncing. Yeah. And then what they do, no, no, don't disappear, Ruth. Don't disappear. Then what they do is they give you a... Um, a power balance band to hold on to. So, oh, look, I'm just going to give you a coin. Hold on to that. Right. Okay. And then, then they push down again. And, oh, well, your balance is just terrible anyway. <laughs> but but in, in, the, um, in the... I'll take that money back, thank you. Um, <laughs> in the, the testing, what happens is, is that when you have the power balance band holding in your hand or on your wrist, suddenly they're not falling over anymore. Oh. Right. So <laughs> your, your body's in tune with itself then. Yeah, at that yeah, point. yeah. So it balances. Steady. Now I did a bit of research on this test, and um, this is a bit of a show trick that's been around for a while. It's called applied kinesiology. I'll try that again. Applied kinesiology, and it's used by like bogus naturopaths, chiropractors, nutritionists, um, and been disproven by many scientific double-blind tests. Now, I do say bogus versions of those. There are good nutritionists out there, good naturopaths, good chiropractors. Um, but basically what they do in... Uh, my little brother had this done to him, actually. Uh, he went to a naturopath, and they put various things in your hand and if and then get you to hold your hand out and push against your hand and if your hand goes down then it weakens your body and you must be allergic to those sorts of things um sounds like an old um old school witch's test well it it is really and i mean applied kinesiology has been disproven with proper scientific testing you know they've done it's very suggestive um they they did a great one at a college in the u.s which i love where they um uh Gave, just gave people M&Ms, but they said that um, to some of them that they were high-energy um, tablets, and so when they, they had them, and when they thought that they had these high-energy things in them, they were a lot stronger, despite the fact everyone had the same thing in them. It's placebo effect. Placebo effect, once again. It comes back in. And, I mean, look, people are using it, and it might be a placebo effect. There's, there's you know, top-line people out there like... Uh, NRL footballer Benji Marshall, AFL footballers Nick Revolt, Be- Brendan Favola, um, basketballer Shaquille O'Neal, even champion jockey Damien Oliver uses these power bands. But there's no rigid scientific testing that's been performed on them. Um, you know, the, the website for it claims um, some amazing tests, but a lot of the links are broken to that and don't actually work. Um, one, of my favorite, yeah, well, one of my favourite... Yeah, one of my favourite... One of my favourite reviews I did find was from a website called Ratbags, um, which awarded Power Balance one of their Millennium Awards, saying the product is effective only in that the judges tried some of the wristbands and they unanimously agreed that the bracelets certainly increased the strength of their laughter. (laughs) So maybe it is time we need some proper scientific testing on it. And... um, it's happening. Uh, a chiropractor from Victoria, Dr. Simon Bryce, has uh, got together a team uh, to test the products under proper clinical studies. Um, the Australian Medical Association just simply dismissed the claims as implausible, and uh, that was it. But this, this chiropractor, Dr. Simon Bryce, is going to give it a go and test some of these amazing claims made by the manufacturers. So I'll be really curious to see what happens um, when we put it under some proper testing and... Uh, Hopefully, might see some scientific results. If we do, fuzzy listeners, I'll bring them to you back here on Fuzzy Logic and uh, see what can happen with these amazing power bands. Wouldn't it be great, though, if you could just wear a wristband that sort of 
put your body back in tune and I'd wear know, multiple. And... Why wouldn't people wear <laughs> yeah, multiple? Right. Well, well, I don't know. Would they, they cancel frequencies? each other out then with those frequencies? That's true. <laughs> you set up a, a standing wave inside you, and then yeah. who knows what will happen? You fall apart like the bridge did. That would be awkward. Well, yeah, I'm not. I really don't believe this frequency thing in our bodies, but um, it's an interesting idea. It really is. Um, we're going to jump to one more song, and uh, then we'll come back and uh, finish off this Fuzzy Logic Sports Science episode for today. One of my favourite songs there, Ben Folds, with such great heights. We're almost coming to the end of our Fuzzy Logic show today, but we've been talking about sports science and different sciences out there. We were just talking before about pseudoscience of these wristbands that are looking at the inherent frequencies of our body, and I thought we'd share the conversation we had during the song about another frequency that can vibrate during throughout our body. Pahir, tell us about the brown note. <laughs> Thanks, Roderick. Um, well, we were just discussing that uh, there are frequencies that affect our body and our internal organs, and one that I've heard on the street is the brown note, which is um, you can produce a sound at a certain frequency which will stimulate your bowel movements. And uh, for all those people with uh, that struggle, uh, maybe we should do some more research into it. I'm not sure if it's been proven or disproven. Yeah, so this is, this is one we're going to put to you, fuzzy listeners, I think. You can do your own research here and try and find out about this brown note. Um, is it that bass note? You know, when you go to a, a concert or a gig and they play these really deep bass notes and you sort of feel them in your gut. Is it lower than that, I wonder? Like, does it get even... I've heard it on the, on the street once again that it is, you know, a low note, but I mean, maybe that just kind of makes sense in terms of making you want to, yeah. you know, evacuate your bowels. <laughs> it's something nice and low, like a... Uh, how's of it go again? Sorry, uh, Brody. Maybe we should evacuate this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's call it to an end then. And um, let's have a look at some of the science that's going on this week around Canberra. What's lined up for us, Pahir? Well, around Canberra this week, Folks, you can get into the Da Vinci Machines exhibition at Floriad. So if you haven't been to Floriad yet, go down. I went with my mum and it was a lot of fun. But the Da Vinci Machines exhibition is on loan from Florence, Italy, and it has lots of different um, creations that were devised more than 500 years ago by Da Vinci himself. Over 60 machines are on display, many of them interactive. Brod, you've been, you've seen Yeah, them? I went, went to the Florence Museum and it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, me and my uh, little brother, who would have been about six or seven at the time, we had a ball playing inside these machines. It's great. Oh, recently, they, um, some university students in America built one of uh, Da Vinci's machines, his flying machines. Really? And it has a wingspan of... 32 metres, they made it out of carbon fibre. And it was just, Da Vinci just sketched it um, back back in his day. He didn't ever build it. And in fact, they say that the, the version that he sketched would not, have, would not have flown because it was too heavy. But they built this out of carbon fibre and it's pedal powered. So it's a pedal powered flapping uh, flying machine. And they apparently flew it like 30 metres or whatever, just one person pedaling away and uh, flapping these giant 32-metre wings. Wow. So basically the wingspan was equivalent of a Boeing 747, yeah. and it's just one person pedalling away, flapping them. Amazing stuff. Yeah, well, that's what this exhibition's all about, I think, is just building some of those sketches that Da Vinci made and seeing some of the amazing ideas he's got. If you are interested, it's until the 14th of November, so a little while yet, and tickets are available at the door. Apart from that, if you're a photographer... Uh, the Geoscience Australia is looking for a top geo shot. 
So if you've got a photo that captures the essence of Earth Sciences, then the um, entries will be in and they'll be displayed during Earth Science Week, which is at Geoscience. So entries are open till 4th of October, so get your pickies in. That sounds like a, a rocking competition. Oh, no. That was terrible. <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even think of another one. And lastly, um, something a bit closer is the 30th of September, Thursday this week, from 5.30 till 6.30, there is a lecture. Life, the Universe and Nothing, a Cosmic Mystery Story. So a little bit different, it's at ANU. It's all about the standard model of cosmology that we've been using for the last 100 years, but apparently now it's dead. What's replaced it is far more bizarre and has led to the biggest unsolved mystery in modern physics. I hope I've sold it well. It's on Thursday, the 30th of September, 5.30 at ANU. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Pahia. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's Fuzzy Logic show. If you enjoyed the show or missed parts of it, sign up to our podcast on iTunes. Just type in Fuzzy Logic and you'll be able to find us there. Or if you are on Facebook, get, become our friend. We need some more friends on Facebook. So type in Fuzzy Logic on Facebook, click like. And uh, are you friends, Pahia? Um, with you or Fuzzy Logic? With Fuzzy Logic. Of course. Of course. I will be. You will be, definitely, Ruth. Ruth's going to sign up straight after the show for Fuzzy Logic on Facebook. That's all that we have for you this week. Tune in next week, same time, 11.30am on a Sunday, and uh, there'll be some more fantastic science for you. But for now, that's all the sports science we've got. Um, final tips before we leave. NRL Grand Final, Ruth, St George or Roosters? I'm going to go the Saints again because I went for the Saints in the AFL. Well, and, and the Saints again in the AFL replay? Yeah. Yeah, and Pahia, any tips? Uh, be nice to your mother. Be nice to your mother. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm going to go for the double Saints win again, I reckon. And uh, that's all we have time for today on Fuzzy Logic. Thank you very much for listening, Canberra. It's farewell from me and farewell, Ruth. Yeah, see you later. And see you later, Pahia. Bye-bye.